You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. This week, we're continuing our history of Walt Disney's empire, starting right where we ended last week. When Walt passed away, quite suddenly, of lung cancer in 1966, he left behind a vast media empire without a leader. This episode covers what happened in those intervening years to the present day. As always, we will be focusing more on the film side of things. The theme park and the other holdings Disney possesses is its own beast. Before we get to the main topic today, I did want to address some messages I got about last week's episode and how Walt Disney was not totally the kind-hearted, generous genius people generally make him out to be, especially his own studio. But that was kind of my goal because most people have that rosy image of Walt and I wanted to show you the other side of that. He did great things, wonderful things. But he also did some not-so-great stuff, too. He was human, after all. Since some of you that don't necessarily work in entertainment are slowly discovering how not-so-nice people in the industry can be, this episode is going to do little to nothing to change that notion. Disney, especially in the 90s, was a cutthroat place to be, especially if you were in a place of power. Also, I got an email about not mentioning Walt Disney's cryogenically frozen head for some reason. Um, Not that it matters, but that's an urban legend, as the first person to be cryogenically frozen did not occur until late 1967, a year after Walt's death. So that that didn't happen. (laughs) With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. I hope you enjoy the show and incidentally have a handkerchief handy. If you're like me, you're not only going to laugh a lot, but you're going to shed a few happy tears. So thanks for coming. And again, I'm sorry I can't be there with you personally for this occasion. But here now is Follow Me Boy. Walt Disney was gone, and Walt Disney Pictures was in need of a new leader. Roy Disney, his older brother and longtime second-in-command, stepped in and took over as chairman, CEO, and president of the company, overseeing the last two films his brother had produced, The Jungle Book and The Happiest Millionaire. The remainder of the 1960s saw happy-go-lucky, successful films, and the studio would release its fully post-Walt animation film in 1970 with The Aristocats. Roy's reign over the family empire would be a short one. He died of a stroke in 1971, shortly after overseeing the opening of Walt Disney World in Florida. The company control then passed to Don Tatum, the first non-Disney to control the company, whom had been personally trained by Walt to one day take up this mantle. 
Tatum was an L.A. native and Stanford University alum who had started his tenure at Disney in 1956 as a business manager. Card Walker, Tatum's eventual replacement when he retired in 1980, had also been trained by Walt and Roy to eventually oversee the company. Walt's goal had been to make sure the company would be looked after at least 25 years after his death, and he certainly seemed to have made a pretty good run at that. Walt passed away in a very different world than the one he'd started his empire in. The taste of audiences, especially young adult audiences, had shifted drastically, and Disney's rosy, idealized version of the world that the studio had been successfully producing for years no longer resonated with them. The picture-perfect image Walt had broadcast into their living rooms when they were children every week was a thing of the past. They wanted something new. Honey, you're gonna put the paint customers to sleep with all this jazz. You gotta get the new sound. Come on now, let's compromise. You give a little, I'll give a little. Come on, let's get together. That's it! Disney had an image problem, but not the one you'd normally associate with that phrase. Quite the opposite, actually. Disney was associated with kids and family films, and the young people of the 70s that were coming back to theaters were going to see Easy Rider, Bonnie and Clyde, and The Graduate, not the million-dollar duck. Disney, seeing the success of the first Star Wars film, even tried to make their own version of a space movie called The Black Hole but it couldn't compete with Star Wars. After a series of live-action failures, Disney did something it had never done before. It hired outside producers for its films. Disney also began collaborating with other studios, which was becoming more and more prevalent during this time. The first two collaborations were with Paramount Pictures and yielded 1980 films Popeye and Dragon Slayer. Paramount was Disney's distributor in Canada at the time, and Paramount hoped this co-collaboration would bring Paramount much-needed international recognition. The Disney name was much stronger than theirs at the time. These films didn't quite do it, and in 1982, after two, not flops, but not blockbusters by any stretch of the word, Tron and Night Crossing, the studio experienced a loss of $27 million. Disney was hit with another small disaster when Don Bluth, a longtime animator for Disney, left the company, taking 11 other animators with him to start his own animation studio to compete with Disney. The studio had just had a much-needed hit with 1977's The Rescuers and were hoping to bring in another golden era for Disney animation. The loss of 17% of their animators led to a delay for their next film, The Fox and the Hound. Bluff Studio would compete quite successfully several times against Disney throughout the 1980s. Co-productions weren't working, and PG-rated films weren't working. Keep in mind, PG-13 wasn't added to the MPAA until summer 1984. So VP of production at the time, Tom Wilhite, announced what would become Touchstone Pictures in late 1982. 
The project was the brainchild of Ron Miller, yet another of Walt's trainees and also his son-in-law. In a New York Times article, Will Height stated about the upcoming brand that, quote, We won't get into horror or exploitative sex, but using a non-Disney name will allow us wider latitude in the maturity of the subject matter and the edge we can add to the humor. The first few releases, including an adaptation of Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, was released in 1983 without any studio banner as the name for the new division had not yet been announced. Unsurprisingly, the film division posted a loss of $33 million that year. On February 15, 1984, Touchstone Pictures was formally announced by then-CEO of Disney, Ron Miller. Their first official film in the label, Splash, was actually a huge hit for the studio. And now it's time to introduce another member of the Disney family. Roy E. Disney, the son of Roy Sr., had been an employee for his father and uncle's studio since 1951. Over the years, he had worked for the company in several different roles, eventually rising to the executive level before giving up the position over dissatisfaction with the creative choices of the company. He did, however, remain on the board of directors. At this time, the theme parks were generating approximately 70% of the company's total revenue. In 1984, a hostile takeover was attempted by Saul Steinberg, a financier whose company Reliance Group Holdings owned 11.7% of Disney. The intent was to break up the company to sell off certain divisions to the highest bidder. This was blocked when Disney bought out Reliance's shares via White Knight Investors, organized by Roy, but in doing so, they created another problem for themselves. The other stockholders believed this deal devalued their stock in the company and sued. A settlement was not reached until 1989. Also in 1984, Sid Bass, another financier, became the largest shareholder of the company, owning about 18% of Disney. His majority share would lead to a shakeup within the executive levels of Disney. And now we get to the Eisner years. Oh, Michael Eisner. Michael Eisner had been one of Barry Diller's killer dillers. If you've listened to all of the episodes of this podcast, you might remember Diller as the president of Paramount from 1974 to 1984. When Diller recruited Eisner in 1976, Eisner had been moving up the ranks at a pre-Disney-owned ABC, where Diller had previously hired him before moving to Paramount. Diller made Eisner CEO of Paramount's movie studio division. Eisner had a massively successful run at Paramount, producing films from the Star Trek franchise and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Footloose, amongst many, many others. When Diller retired in 1984, he wished for Eisner to take over as president of Paramount, but was looked over in favor of Frank Mancuso Jr., Eisner was done with Paramount after this, and seeing the opening for the Disney job, lobbied hard for the job he ultimately got. Eisner was brought on as chairman of the board and CEO of the Walt Disney Corporation in 1984 by Sid Bass and Roy E. Disney in the hopes of achieving peace amongst the shareholders. 
To strengthen the studio further, Frank Wells, a former Warner Brothers man, was brought on as president of the studio, and Eisner brought John Katzenberg to Disney from Paramount as chairman of Walt Disney Studios. These three would oversee some of Disney's most successful animated films. In the footsteps of Walt Disney himself, Michael Eisner became the face of the wonderful world of Disney, making him the first head of the studio to be a public face for the Disney brand since Walt himself. He also emphasized the already founded home video brand and increased the output of Touchstone. Hits from Eisner's early years through Touchstone included Good Morning Vietnam and Pretty Woman. Eisner's former boss, Barry Diller, had been integral in expanding Paramount's television output to increase profit at that studio. Eisner brought the same strategy to Disney in the late 80s and early 90s. It was at this time that Disney entered animation for television. Now comes the part the 90s kids will remember quite fondly. The following era is commonly referred to as the Disney Renaissance, a 10-year period where the animated films were once again profitable and immensely successful. Starting in the early 90s, Eisner planned the Disney Decade, during which time Eisner planned to expand the Disney brand, adding new theme parks around the world, expanding the existing parks, new films, and new media investments. Eisner and his team revitalized Disney, putting out films us 90s kids are so fond of, like The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, Hercules, Pocahontas, all of those. Beauty and the Beast became the first animated film to be nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. And Disney is currently the only studio to have ever had an animated film do so. The company also acquired a ton of properties, including ABC in 1995, most of ESPN, The Muppets, and Miramax, the latter of which allowed them an entry into the independent film market. Eisner, Wells, and Katzenberg brought exponential growth to the corporation. Eisner, Wells, and Katzenberg brought exponential growth to Disney. Disney stock prices increased a whopping 1,500%, while its theme park and result revenues tripled. Disney consumer product revenues rose 13-fold, while Disney filmed entertainment revenues jumped 15-fold. The trio had helped make Disney one of the most successful film studios in the world. In short, it was a good time to be a Disney stockholder. Most of Eisner's plans would not come to fruition, especially on the theme park side of things. While the studio had shown a pretty solid run throughout the 90s, the cracks were beginning to break through Disney's rosy facade. I never thought hyenas essential. They're crude and unspeakably plain. But maybe they were glimmer Starting in 1993, Jeffrey Katzenberg, whom had very much been responsible for the success of the early animated films of the Disney Renaissance, lobbied to get Wells' job which would have placed Katzenberg as second in command and demoted Wells to vice chair from president. Eisner refused to do this, not wanting to hurt Wells' feelings. Eisner, according to Katzenberg, promised, quote, if for any reason Frank is not here, 
You are the number two person, and I want you to have the job. Katzenberg's contribution to the studio at this point had led to, according to one analyst, an 80% increase in Disney stock. The Lion King would become the second highest grossing film at the time, grossing over a billion dollars, something that was much more rare in the early 90s than it is now. It was his management of the animation studio, after all, that had put out the massively successful films that was partially leading to Disney's increase in value. He had also just closed a deal with a little company called Pixar. Frank Wells, while on vacation, died tragically in a helicopter crash in 1994. Wells, an avid outdoorsman and mountaineer, was skiing on Easter Sunday when on the return flight, the helicopter engine failed, killing all but one aboard. The very next day, Katzenberg went to his office at 6 a.m. to await a phone call from Michael Eisner that never came. Instead, at noon, Eisner announced that he would be taking over for Wells' responsibilities going forward. Needless to say, this didn't sit too well with Katzenberg, whom exploded at Eisner during lunch the following day. They did agree, after the argument, to put matters on hold, for the time being, for the good of the company and to give the facade of a united front. Roy E. and some others internally didn't like Katzenberg taking as much credit as he was for the studio's success, despite numbers reflecting in Katzenberg's favor that this was in fact true. Roy personally detested Katzenberg. As a member of the board, a member who not only carried the name of the studio, but a great deal of influence on the other members, according to Eisner, Roy threatened a proxy fight, which is when the board overthrows the current management, if Eisner appointed Katzenberg as his new number two. Not wanting to lose his job, Eisner went along with them, and Katzenberg was forced to resign in 1994, but he did not go quietly. Not long after leaving Disney, he brought forth a half-a-billion-dollar lawsuit against the studio, citing profits that he believed were owed to him. The lawsuit and eventual settlement ended up costing Disney $270 million. Katzenberg would go on to form DreamWorks with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen in October of 1994, two months after Katzenberg was removed from Disney. But that's a story for another time. What is it? Can you see what it? What the heck is up there? Woody, who's up there with you? <coughs> Woody, what are you doing under the bed? Uh, nothing, uh, nothing. I'm sure Andy was just a little excited, that's all. Too much cake and ice cream, I suppose. It's just a mistake. Well, that mistake is sitting in your spot, Woody. <laughs> Have you been replaced? Hey, what did I tell you earlier? No one is getting replaced. Now, let's all be polite and give whatever it is up there a nice, big Andy's room welcome. With Katzenberg out, Eisner hired Michael Ovitz in 1995 to replace Wells' position within the company. Ovitz was a founder of CAA, a talent agency, and a friend of Eisner's who lasted about 14 months on the job. Ovitz was frustrated by his vague definition of duties and had grown increasingly frustrated with Eisner because of this. It was rumored that things weren't going well internally from almost day one of the partnership, but don't feel too bad for Ovitz. He got a roughly $140 million severance package, nearly $100 million of which was in stock options. Shareholders sued over this as well, but lost in a suit that would end up taking 10 years. 
Eisner would later say in an interview he regretted firing Ovitz. This began Eisner's fall from favor with the board. Disney would continue to grow throughout the remainder of the 1990s, lawsuits aside, but this would not last long. In 2001, as a result of the 9-11 attacks and a reduction of people traveling, Disney cut 4,000 employees, reduced theme park operations, slashed live-action film investments, and minimized internet operations. Roy would retire in 2003, though he was still a major shareholder in the company, the last Disney to be directly involved with the studio. Roy cited micromanagement in the company, a string of box office failures, his disappointment in ABC's performance, stagnation within the theme park's growth, and Eisner's lack of a plan of succession for when he retired as his reasons for leaving. Roy believed that the company was becoming a soulless entity, light years away from the one his uncle and father had founded 80 years prior. If Roy were alive today, one does wonder what he would think of the Goliath Disney has become. Disney struggled through the recessions of the knots. Comcast even made a $54 billion unsolicited bid in 2004 to purchase the company. The offer was rejected. Pixar, after 12 years of working with Disney, began looking for another distributor for their films, citing tensions with Eisner as one of the reasons they were looking elsewhere. Eisner was falling apart, and much of the board was fed up with his management, the golden days of the late 80s, early 90s, now a distant memory. He was voted out from his position by the board in 2004, though not immediately removed. Roy E. would return to the board as director emeritus, a role he would maintain until his passing in 2009. Eisner held the role for another year and 10 days, until on March 15, 2005, when he handed over his responsibilities to one Mr. Bob Iger. Disney was about to go through a major glow-up. There was an idea. Stark knows this. Called the Avengers Initiative. The idea was to bring together a group of remarkable people, see if they could become something more. See if they could work together when we needed them to, to fight the battles that we never could. Bob Iger is the man who made Disney into the media powerhouse it is today, for better or worse. One of Iger's first moves was to fix the Pixar problem Eisner had created. To do this, Disney purchased Pixar in an all-stock deal with Steve Jobs, whom owned 50.1% of the company at the time. Jobs was placed on the board of Disney as its largest shareholder, at almost 7%. Pixar had been responsible for most of Disney's success at the time, thanks to films like The Toy Stories, A Bug's Life, Monsters, Inc., and Finding Nemo. With the purchase... John Lasseter, former head of Pixar Animation, became the head of all of Walt Disney Animation. Iger and the board began a restructure of the company to focus on more family-friendly content, downsizing Touchstone and selling off Miramax in the process, pretty much the opposite of what Eisner had wanted to do. They also shut down a venture they were planning to do with Robert Zemeckis, as well as a country music label. In 2008, Paramount Pictures released a film you may have heard of called Iron Man, 
produced by the nearly bankrupt Marvel Studios, the success of the film, and to a lesser extent, The Incredible Hulk the same year, quickly spawned the sequel for Iron Man, as well as announcements to make Thor and Captain America. In August of 2009, Disney sought to acquire Marvel, a feat it achieved by the end of the year. Disney now carried the torch for what would become the Marvel Cinematic Universe. To date, there have been 23 films, with eight more on the way in the next three years, three ABC television series, six Netflix series, two Hulu shows, one cable show, and eight series announced for Disney Plus that have all been released under the MCU banner. All of the films have received positive reviews and made obscene amounts of money at the box office. And don't even get me started about what they've made in merchandising. It is, it is an insane amount of money. Proving they're not just popcorn movies, though they are mostly popcorn movies, 2018's Black Panther was the first superhero film to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. 2019's Avengers Endgame became the most financially successful film of all time, not adjusted for inflation. Iger wanted another franchise to purchase, and he didn't have to look too long or too hard to find one. Disney had had a relationship with George Lucas and Lucasfilm in the past, including theme park rides for the parks based on Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Lucas was looking to retire and was discreetly searching for a buyer for his studio, eventually landing with Disney. The deal was announced on October 30th, 2012, and completed two months later. Disney announced not long after their intent to not only add three episodes to the original Star Wars saga, now called the Skywalker Saga, but to expand the universe as a whole. While the excitement for these films was fervent at the time, and the first Disney Star Wars film, Star Wars Episode VII The Force Awakens, was a critical and financial smash, this could not be said for the films that follow. Episode VIII, The Last Jedi, was critically well-received but panned by fans overall, leading to less box office returns. The films in the expanded universe did modestly well, at least Rogue One in 2016 did. The next one, Solo, A Star Wars Story, did not. By the time Episode Nine reached theaters, Star Wars fatigue had set in as it had not with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Plans are made for the future, and the Mandalorian and all of its baby Yoda, yes, I know he's called the child goodness, has shifted things toward a more slightly positive position for the franchise's future. You've taken your first step into a larger world. Ready for this? We'll all be together at long last. We are all connected. It's 2017. Disney owns two of the most popular film franchises in the world, as well as their own illustrious catalog, and in recent years has recovered financially from the damage done during Eisner's later years. They've even started rebooting their animated films as live-action ones to various degrees of success. Stock was back up. Theme park attendance was sky-high. What more could Disney want? How about another studio? In November 2017, it was announced that Rupert Murdoch and Disney had entered talks for Disney to acquire 20th Century Fox, FX, and National Geographic. 
The sale would include everything but the backlot, news group, television studios, or sports, which had been separated from the film holdings and kept by the Murdoch family. The thing Iger wanted more than anything was BAMTech, a streaming tech company, in hopes of starting a streaming service for Disney. This was not a quick sale, as a bidding war ensued between several other studios, most notably Comcast, as well as challenges regarding whether or not Disney's acquisition of 20th Century Fox violated antitrust laws. I know my audience isn't a super big legalese crowd, so I won't go too far into specifics, but it basically culminated in March 20th, 2019, when the 21st Century Fox and Disney merger was completed. Disney canceled several films that had been previously greenlit by Fox executives prior to the merger and took others that had been completed off the schedule altogether. A new reduced slate of about 10 films per year, fully overseen by Disney, will now be the main focus of the studio, with 20th Century Fox making half of those movies for Hulu and Disney+. With the acquired majority share in BAMTech, Iger announced Disney Plus in November of 2018. At the time of this recording, the platform has been around for about a year and seems to be doing quite well when compared to its several other competitors. The service, as of September 2020, has 73.7 million users. After 15 years of running the company, Bob Iger announced his stepping down as CEO on February 25th, 2020, citing the success of the 21st Century Fox merger and Disney Plus as his reasons to transition to a new CEO. Bob Chappick was announced as his successor before the coronavirus and the challenges facing the studio led Iger back to the CEO seat to navigate the company through the pandemic. COVID-19 has decimated the entertainment industry in various different ways, especially when it comes to the exhibition of film. Disney delayed nearly all of their upcoming theatrical releases of 2020 and released others onto Disney+, Plus, including the live-action Mulan and Artemis Fowl. When I initially wrote this episode, it had just been announced that Disney intends to restructure their business to focus more on streaming than theatrical releases. How much of this is due to COVID versus the popularity of streaming with younger audiences is hard to say, and we won't know how the long-term impact of the pandemic will have on the entertainment industry as a whole, but one thing is for certain, Walt Disney Studios isn't going anywhere. And that's it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I do as much research as I can in the week it takes me to write and produce each episode, so if I got anything wrong, please email me and I will correct it on a future episode. I'm also relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out for the time being, so if you could rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. Sharing it on social media? Bonus points. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. This support will allow me to keep making episodes as well as being able to acquire better equipment. If you'd like to help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. 
Next week, we're going to take a closer look at Walt's Disneyland and the films that were inspired from his attractions. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.